Hi there, listener. I'm Nina, and you're listening to Bullshare's co-creation sessions, your resource for all things brand advocacy, current trends, and customer insights. At the co-creation sessions, we're keeping our finger on the pulse of consumer behavior and delivering those insights straight into your ears. So stay tuned for another great session. Welcome to today's session, Working Minds, Breaking the Stigma Around Mental Health in the Boardroom, Your Guide to a Happy, Healthy Workforce. Work is both a source of joy and stress, which was very much reflected in the mixed sentiments from our community about how work makes them feel. At many times, that stress is eustress. It provides motivation and purpose and a challenge. At other times, that stress can become too much. When you combine that with the pressures of day-to-day life, of family life, of relationships, of financial challenges, it can become difficult to function at work, to gel amongst the team and to focus on your daily tasks. We asked our community if they dread Mondays and if work is delivering more stress than joy. And we found that 63% of our community voted to say that work makes them stressed, with 56% saying it often makes them intensely stressed. In fact, a third answered to say they feel unhappy at work, with 38% saying their mental well-being is just not respected in the workplace. Perhaps sometimes then we do need to put the eye back in team. We need to treat mental well-being and happiness as just as important as any other KPI or goal. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by the inspirational Jeff McDonald. Jeff is a keynote speaker, a mental health campaigner, a business transformation consultant, and a co-founder of Minds at Work. He is a true champion of mental well-being in the workplace, and he has also spent over two decades working for the multinational consumer goods company Unilever, where he worked as the vice president of human resources and the global vice president of HR for marketing, communication, sustainability, and talent. Uh, Jeff, I think before before we go any further I'd love for you to introduce yourself to everyone listening maybe we can kick off with your story and how you got into mental health campaigning wonderful thank you Nina and thank you to bulb share for uh, giving me this platform uh, today to to live out um, my own sense of purpose uh, and it was lovely watching some of the uh, the brands and the the way you talk about brands and how brands can become more purposeful and be a positive and very good force for good in the world. Mm. And I've got a very, very simple purpose. uh, And that is to try and create workplaces all over the world where people in those workplaces feel that they genuinely, genuinely have the choice to just put their hand up and to ask for some help if they might be suffering from a common form of mental ill health. So that could be depression. It could be anxiety. They might have been diagnosed as bipolar. And, you know, I don't think that that's a very noble or audacious purpose. And I'll tell you why. Because in every single workplace anywhere in the world, if you had a common physical illness, the flu, Um, COVID, you wouldn't think twice about putting your hand up and asking for some help. You turn to your line manager, you turn to a peer and say, you know what, I'm not feeling very well. And you'd have the conversation. But if you were struggling mentally or emotionally, you'd think twice about asking for help. You'd think twice about telling your peer, going to your line manager, speaking to HR. How can that be? 
when all of us on this call and everybody who's listening to me, all of us are mental. There's not one of us who's not mental. We've all got cognitive abilities, which means that is our mental health. That means we all can think, we can all rationalize, we can all concentrate. Mental health is a wonderful thing to have. So we're all mental and we're all emotional. There's not one of us on this call today who's not emotional. We're all physical and some would say we're also spiritual. Yet we live in a world that as I talk to you today, there are billions and billions of people, billions, not millions. There are billions and billions of people all over the world suffering in silence. Now, you asked me why and how did I get into this whole area of advocating, campaigning, and helping organizations to create truly inclusive workplaces where people feel that they can bring their whole self to work and talk about some of their mental and emotional struggles. And I got into this work through my own lived experience of mental ill health. And I'm just gonna share some of that story with you today. Um, I'll never forget the date. It was the 25th of January, 2008. And the reason I don't forget that date is because on the 26th of January, 2008, my eldest daughter, her name is Jennifer, she was gonna turn 13. So you can imagine how much excitement there was in our household that evening, the night before, her 13th birthday. And at midnight, on the 25th of January, 2008, I got woken up with a massive, massive panic attack. Now, I had never experienced a panic attack in all my life. The words panic attack weren't part of my vocabulary. I don't think I'd ever, ever had a conversation with anybody about a panic attack, never. The ends of my fingers are tingling. The ends of my toes are tingling. My heart is beating profusely. I'm struggling to regulate my breathing. The bed sheets are wet with sweat. And because I'm so naive to what was going on, I remember bumping my wife and saying, Deb, I think I'm about to have a heart attack. And she asked me why, and I tried to explain what feelings I was experiencing. And she said to me, well, why don't you just get up and just walk around the room and, and just take some deep breaths, which I did. And slowly, slowly, the levels of anxiety began to subside. And, you know, every time I tell the story, I feel some of that anxiety, even today, you know, 14 years later. I get back into bed, but then I can't go back to sleep. And I can't go back to sleep because of three things. One, I'm petrified that if I fall back to sleep, it will happen again. Secondly, the adrenaline is pumping through my body. And thirdly, I develop a capability, and I don't know where it came from, but I built this capability whereby I was able to catastrophize over the most insignificant issues in my life catastrophized. I remember having a sore on the inside of my mouth and I got up at about three in the morning and I remember going into the bathroom, interrogating the sore, getting back into bed and convincing myself that I had the beginnings of throat and mouth cancer. 
and I would lie there and catastrophize about the fact that I'm going to die of cancer. Seven o'clock the next morning, who comes running into our bedroom? Jennifer. It's her 13th birthday. And I mean, we have a tradition at home where on birthdays, we all kind of get together presents at the end of the bed and her little sister, Anna, comes running in after her. They're so excited. Jen wants to open all her presents at the end of the bed. And all I can say to Debbie, my wife, to Jennifer and to Anna is please, please leave me alone. Please go away. I mean, there's no ways I can engage in anything where there is noise, where there's laughter, where there's enthusiasm. And all I want to do is I just want to take the duvet. I just want to pull it over my head. And for the life of me, I can't get myself out of bed. So Debbie takes the kids downstairs. Jen opens her presents. They go off to school. Debbie gets back at about 10 o'clock. Where am I? Still in bed. Now, I'm not the sort of guy who's in bed at 10 o'clock most mornings. I'm a typical South African. I love the outdoors. I love my sport. Go for a run of a morning or a walk or a swim or a mountain bike ride. And here I am on my daughter's 13th birthday, struggling to do what I do very easily most days. And that's swing my legs onto the side of the bed, onto the floor, and up I get. I can't because I'm paralyzed. I feel paralyzed by the anxiety that I feel. Cut a long story short, when Debbie gets into the bedroom and says, what's wrong? I say, I, you know, she says to me, why don't you go and see somebody? Why don't you go and talk to somebody about how you're feeling? I said, who? She said, why don't you go and see a doctor? I said, a doctor? Why? I've got no aches. I've got no pains. I'm not nauseous. I haven't got a temperature. Well, I must have go to a doctor. Anyway, cut a long story short, at midday, I'm in a doctor's rooms and I'm diagnosed with anxiety-fueled depression. Yes, me, depression. Do you know what my understanding of the word depression was up until that point? I remember when Unilever first moved me to the UK and about... 98, where I was looking after the Africa, Middle East, and Turkey business group from an HR point of view. And I remember about, I'd been here for about two years. And people would come to me and talk to me in the middle of January, in the middle of winter. They'd talk to me about a thing called SAD. And I would say to them, What's SAD? And they would say, It's seasonal effects disorder. And I'd say, What? What's that? They say, The weather, it can influence your mood. And I remember I used to think to myself, what a load of hogwash. Don't tell me the weather influences your mood. As Piers Morgan would probably say, just man up, you snowflake, and get on with the weather. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what, that was my understanding of this term depression. And here I am on my daughter's 13th birthday, diagnosed with anxiety fueled depression. Now, as I leave the doctor's rooms that day, I make a decision Nina, that saved my life. Mm. And I don't think I would be doing the work that I'm doing today, or I have been doing over the last nine years, if it hadn't been for this decision. And the decision I took as I walked out the doctor's rooms is that I wouldn't be burdened by the stigma that is associated with depression. Now, there were a few things in my favor which allowed me to make that decision. And let me tell you what they were. Number one, I had a diagnosis. 
I felt liberated by the diagnosis from a doctor. Secondly, I've got the sort of personality where I wear my heart beat. So what you see is what you get. I'm not very good at masking my feelings. So look me in the eye and you'll see if there's something wrong. Thirdly, I was 20 years into a career with Unilever. At the time, I was looking after, from an HR point of view, all of our home care division around the Unilever world. So I had built enormous credibility. I was a senior HR professional. I wasn't sort of waiting for the next job or a young graduate or middle manager that was ambitious and was worried about the next job. And the fourth thing that was in my favor is at the time, I had a line manager, a guy by the name of Keith Weed, who was the head of home care at the time. And I was his HR business partner. And you know, Keith had a compassionate relationship to me. Oh, I was so lucky. He didn't have an intolerant relationship. He had a compassionate relationship. And so not being burdened by the stigma allowed me to come home, to tell my daughters, to tell my wife, to tell some of my close friends, to tell some of my colleagues at work why I wasn't at work. I had to take three months off work. And you know, Nina, what I got back from all the people who knew about my illness, 99.8% of the individuals who knew about my illness, you know what I got back from them? I got back from them the most wonderful outpouring of the most powerful emotion in the world. And you know what that is? Love. It's called love. Yeah, exactly. It's called love. And you know, I had to take three months off work. And in my darkest, darkest moments, I had dark moments during those three months. I didn't think life was worth living. I was a burden to my family, to my friends. The world would be better off without me. But you know, just knowing that I had a 10-year-old who loved her dad. I had a line manager in Keith who loved me. I had friends who loved me. You know that sense of feeling loved? It kept me going. And there was one other emotion that was hugely, hugely instrumental and powerful in my recovery. And that was I used to meet with a colleague of mine, a guy called Martin Cannon. And I used to meet with Martin every 10 days. And Martin, two years prior to my illness, had been so sick, he'd been admitted to the Priory mm. with manic depression. I was never hospitalized, but I used to meet with Martin. And you know what I saw? I saw he was better. Do you know what he gave me? He gave me hope. He gave me that little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And so a combination of feeling loved and a sense of hope were probably the two most powerful ingredients that contributed to my recovery. Yes, I took medication. Yes, I did some cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes, I slowly did a bit of the exercise again. And you know, not all of that works for everybody. But you know what I honestly believe works for all of the people who are struggling in silence as we talk today? Just knowing that they are loved and that there is hope that you can get through this. It will pass. Those were the two most powerful ingredients in my recovery. And so I slowly recover. I go back into Unilever. 2010, two years after my crucible moment in life, I have a relapse. Nothing as bad as 2008. And then in October of 2012, so that's four years after my crucible moment, 
I'm leaving Unilever House, which is situated on the banks of the Thames, just opposite Blackfriars Station. It's the end of the day, and I get onto Blackfriars Bridge because I'm walking down to Waterloo. And as I get onto the bridge, my phone goes. And at the end of the phone is my wife. And she said to me, Jeff, where are you? I said, I'm on the bridge. I'm going down to Waterloo and I'll catch a train home. She said, can you try and get home as quickly as possible? And I said to her, why? And she said, I've got tragic news. You can imagine the first question I asked her. I said, Deb, are the girls okay? Is Jen okay? Is Anna okay? And she said, yes, the girls are okay, but a good friend of yours died by suicide this afternoon. Now, I think it was Carl Jung who once said, the brighter the light, the darker the shadow. The brighter the light, the darker the shadow. And that was my friend. He was the most energetic, passionate, fun-loving human being. He brought so much light to the world. And now he was gone. And I got home that evening and I lay in bed. And you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a therapist. I'm just somebody who's had some lived experience of mental ill health and is trying to do something good with that experience. And I lay in bed that night and I thought to myself, what's the difference between my friend and me? Here I am in 2012, four years after my crucible moment. Here I am flourishing in many ways, learning how to maintain my recovery every single day as somebody who is susceptible to anxiety, fuel depression. And he's gone. What's the difference? And I come to two very simple conclusions. The first conclusion I came to was I'd been able to ask for some help. He couldn't. He was an alpha male Afrikaner South African. There's no ways he could have this conversation, not even with me, who had the badge, I had the t-shirt. And the second conclusion I came to, Nina, was that stigma Stigma had just killed my friend. Because I know that had he had a common physical illness, you know what you've done? Spoken to his wife, gone to the doctor, he would have sought some help. But because he was struggling mentally and emotionally, he didn't think he could do so. And I just lay there and I thought, you know what? That's not fair. That is not fair. How can we live in a world where there's such injustice? And the extreme of that injustice is there are organizations out there where people are performance managed out of a role because the individual is too scared to tell them that they are struggling mentally or emotionally because of stigma. And they lose their job. It's an injustice in the world. And I lay there and I thought, I have to do something about it. But I didn't know where to start because here I am, a South African living down in Surrey, birds of a feather, we all flock together. I'm doing a global job in Unilever. My network is global. But that night I wrote to Alistair Campbell because Alistair back in 2012 was doing some ambassadorial work for a big campaign in the UK called Time to Change. And so I wrote to Alistair 
completely out of the blue. I found his website. I found his email address. And I just wrote to him. And I just said to him, look, this is what happened to me in 2008. This is what happened to me in 2010. And this afternoon, I lost a very good friend to suicide. Please, will you, will you meet with me? Because I knew if I could just meet with Alistair Campbell, I know that he, through his network, would begin to introduce me to some people and open some doors. Within 10 minutes of my email to Alistair, this is not Tony Blair writing to Campbell. This is Jeff McDonald at btinternet.com writing to <laughs> Alistair Campbell. Within 10 minutes, I get a response from him. A week later, we meet up in Belsize Park, close to where he lives, North London. And ever since that day, it was November of 2012, ever since that day, he began to introduce me to some people. He opened some doors, which allowed me to take tiny, tiny footsteps, Nina, tiny, on a journey filled with a deep sense of purpose. And that is to create workplaces all over the world where people feel that they genuinely, genuinely have the choice to just put their hand up and ask for some help if they are struggling with a common form of mental ill health. And you know, Nina, I'm not saying to you or to anybody on this call or the Zoom session or who's going to be listening to this, I'm not saying that if my friend had been able to talk, he would definitely be alive today. I can't say that. But you know what I can say? Is had he been able to just have one conversation, just one, imagine, just one conversation, there is a tiny chance. I want you to think of a grain of sand. There's a tiny chance he would still be alive today. Tiny. And he'd be such a proud father of a 27-year-old, an 18-year-old, and a 17-year-old. He'd be so proud of him. And so I then co-led a piece of work in Unilever around breaking stigma for about a year saw some amazing results of that work. We piloted in the UK. And at the middle of 2014, I left Unilever to go out into the world and journey this path filled with that deep sense of purpose. So that's kind of how I got into the whole area of advocating, being an activist, and helping organizations address the stigma of mental ill health in workplaces. Thank you so much. That's such a powerful story and really deeply moving and poignant as well. Thank you, Jeff. That was, yeah, very inspirational. And I think there were a couple of things that really stood out to me and it's hard to pick just a few, but the, my message from that was um, that you decided you needed to be open about your experience, um, sort of own it and talk about it. And that if stigma prevents people from doing that, then it could have been very different and it is just such a powerful difference between how people are I suppose allowed to talk about physical health uh, and mental health and no one would have much shame around saying they have a broken leg but you don't meet many people that would really openly say I have depression um, but yet that is one of the first things that needs to happen is people talking about it in order to have uh, a chance at change and hope um, yeah. and also like what you say that that emotion of love that you experience when you did talk about it people need that access to that and what's amazing is that when you do start talking about it you will have that and often other people will start talking about their experiences too and you just get this snowball effect of uh, people being able to be open about that so thank you Absolutely. so much yeah, yeah that was a really 
really brilliant introduction. Yeah, I would just hope that, you know, people that, that heard that and listened to it, I, I just hope, and there might be people that will be listening to this that are struggling themselves. And, you know, to just know that, that recovery is, is possible in some form. And as you say, the power of just going and getting some help, just go to a doctor and have the, have the conversation, but mm-hmm. just have those conversations, you know, um, and, and, and recovery is possible and, and, and don't feel alone. Don't feel alone. You know, there are millions and millions of people, billions of people who are out there struggling, struggling right now. Absolutely. And I think because we're talking about this in quite a corporate lens today and at work, there's also that added um, stigma that people are experiencing that we'll address today because um, I think generally we're witnessing um, a movement towards talking about mental health, destigmatizing it, but I think we've still got quite a long way to go in the workplace as well. And also um, for different subsections of people, you were talking about it from a sort of masculine experience as well which is certainly very interesting so before we carry on um i'd like to just quickly introduce everyone to bulb share and explain a little bit about what we do and how we do it so as with every bulb share webinar our discussion is informed by the insights and content direct from our global customer communities bulb share builds always on mobile insight communities anywhere in the world and from any customer segment which provides thousands of real-time insights ideas and content pieces every day helping the brands and organizations we work with to be guided by the voices of their customers to understand their daily lives and ultimately create products, services, content and campaigns that are more rooted in the interests of the real people they seek to serve. And our community building capacities stretch from consumers to fans to employees to advocates to influencers to professionals. And we do this in our mobile app, which has 41 worldwide communities. And today, though, we'll be using content from our UK public channel respondents. And we have over 500 participants involved today. All right, there is tons to cover, Jeff. So let's kick off. Um, I want to start just by asking everyone when the last time was they called in sick to work for a cold, for COVID, for a doctor's appointment. Jeff, you mentioned this as well. It's probably somewhat recent. You might have had a headache. um, You felt unwell. You might have tried to answer a few emails from bed. But for the most part, if you're sick, you're off. Um, Maybe not as much since working from home, undoubtedly. But I imagine if I asked you when the last time you discussed your mental well-being or your stress levels with your boss was, it might be less common. If I asked you when you took leave uh, for your mental health or for the equivalent of mental concerns that you might have for taking time off physically, you might say never. Um, well, over half of our community said that their mental health is not treated as well as their physical health. And 63% said COVID safety is taken more seriously than mental safety. Um, I thought that was really interesting because if you consider that in many ways the two are inextricably linked, uh, people with poor physical health are more likely to suffer mentally and vice versa. And of course, as important as COVID safety is, it's also really crucial to consider the mental impacts that it has on people, both in terms of the anxieties you might experience coming back into social settings, whether that's an office or otherwise but also that deprivation of human connection that you might have otherwise at work that's been taken away. Um, In fact, 59% of our community experience feelings of loneliness. Um, Cambridge Cognition says that despite physical and mental health being equal partners in the maintenance of well-being, mental illness is disproportionately stigmatised. And I think you've 
absolutely touched on that, Jeff, today. Um, so firstly, why is there such a disparity in how mental and physical health are treated and perceived? What's that stigma about? Yeah, look, I think, I mean, uh, Nina, I think, I think it's about, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's all about education. It's all about education, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I suppose we've grown up and there are these kind of stereotypes of, particularly amongst men, of having to be strong. You know, I think language is, is, is so important in this area. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we talk about people being strong. We talk about people being weak. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about people being resilient. Um, I mean... No, none of us are strong. None of us are weak. We're all just unique human beings. I have my makeup. And yes, maybe my tolerance to stress is lower than yours. That doesn't mean I'm weak. It just means I'm different. Yeah. And you know what? It's so beautiful that we're all different because I can bring something unique to the conversation and to the world because of our difference. And so I think that, you know, we just have not, educated ourselves it doesn't happen at school it doesn't happen at university where we've where we've become educated around around things like stress distress depression anxiety what are the symptoms to look out and so with the lack of education so we've created this vacuum and we've filled the vacuum with stigma which is kind of well if you are mentally or emotionally ill that means you're weak and so therefore few people feel embarrassed, they feel shamed, they can't talk about this stuff. So I think it's all that kind of societal stereotyping and those societal norms that we've created through the lack of education, which has resulted in there being a significant amount of stigma. Now, now I think what we are beginning to see in some countries around the world, particularly in the UK, Australia and Canada, which I would say at the forefront, of addressing the stigma around mental ill health is we finding that that you know this is quite a common thing you know and and there is a statistic out there nina which talks about one in four or one in six i hate that statistic <laughs> i think it's one in one yes. because we all have days where we wake up and we feel a bit anxious or we might feel a little bit down a little bit sad you know, we all have weeks where we, all of us, all of us have those feelings, all right? Now, some of us, it might persist, like in my case, for three months, and therefore I had become ill with anxiety-fueled depression. Yeah. But we all experience this stuff. And so the more we can talk about it, the more we can share stories, the more we can educate, the better we begin to create a world where it's okay to talk about the stuff. It's okay not to be okay mentally and emotionally, just like it's okay not to be okay physically. So the more we educate, the more we campaign, the more we get people out there to share their stories with the more we normalize mental ill health amongst the population and populations around the world. Absolutely. It's interesting what you said about education as well, because we're educated on so many topics in school and university. But one thing we're not given the tools for is to understand yeah. our own minds and our emotions. Yeah. There's no lessons in that, are there? Even though it's so, so I fundamental. Mean, you know, I often say, I often say, you know, I, I wish, I mean, my mother or father taught me dental hygiene. Hmm. 
brush your teeth at night, brush your teeth in the morning. Guess what? My teeth haven't fallen out. Do you know what? Nobody ever taught me any mental hygiene. Nobody, nobody, nobody. Right, yeah. And, I, and that's why, you know, whether it's in schools, whether it's in universities, we should be teaching people the skills on how to maintain their emotional and mental health. It should be a critical component of what we teach. And if it's not happening at schools and universities, workplaces and organizations should be teaching this. They should, it should be part of their development of their people, providing with them the right skills to be able to protect their mental and emotional health in the workplace. And it's interesting what you were talking about with language as well, about the weak and strong element. I think there's been a bit of a readdressing of how we consider strength as well uh, recently with people beginning to understand that strength is sometimes defined by the ability to have your, I suppose, uh, emotional connection with yourself, your ability to talk about what you're going through. And, uh, and I suppose there's there's no strength, there's no weakness, um, but there's a redefining of strength as um it's okay to not be okay as you say yeah um, and of course this comes into a whole new element in corporate worlds in workplaces um because we're seeing a burnout culture where people are congratulated for working harder pushing themselves further to the point where they eschew all other elements of self-care and um yeah mental health so it's there's a sort of a movement forwards and backwards I think um, I think there's a sort of LinkedIn influencer culture in terms of people talking about um, this, this keep pushing yourself further but we're also seeing a, a readdressing of how we talk about mental health so yeah there's some some positives and negatives there and how do we create psychologically safe spaces in this new yeah look i think i think what i'm learning as i journey this path is there probably you know there's three or four things that i think workplaces have got to put in place and you know i love the fact that you you i mean you have a stat here that 63 percent of your community think covid safety is taken more seriously than mental hmm. health safety yeah it's so true that you know i often say companies and organizations they spend billions in health and safety billions all over the world well, guess what? It all goes to safety. It all goes to making sure people are physically safe at work. Yes. But why don't we also want to keep people mentally and emotionally safe at work? You know? And so, and so in order to create a more psychologically safe workplace where there is less stigma, I think that there's kind of four lessons that I'm learning. Number one is, if you're going to go down this track, you better make sure you've got support resources in place. Because line managers are not therapists, they're not psychologists. And so if somebody were to put up their hand feeling that it was, it, 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 you created an environment where there was no stigma and they want to talk to their line manager or HR, those people need to direct, they need to signpost people to the support resources that the organization has in place. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is education, education, education. So every single person in an organization should get some training on mental health. Every single person like we do for safety. We train everybody on safety. You can't join an organization these days without having some kind of safety briefing or some kind of training around safety. We should do the exact same for mental health, exact same. What is depression? What is stress? What is anxiety? What are the symptoms to look out for? How do I as a line manager have a conversation with somebody? So training, 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 so, so important. And yes, that's going to require an investment, financial and a human resource investment. But guess what? It might just save a life. It might just save a life by creating an environment where people feel 
completely educated and you've begun to address the stigma. I think the third is campaigning. So run campaigns two, three times a year in an organization, raise the awareness, get the conversation going, talk about this stuff through those campaigns. And then, you know, telling stories, sharing stories, I think is also really, really important that, we, that, that people share their stories. Um, you know, every single story that we tell, every single story that we tell is like sending a lifeboat out into the ocean. And the billions of people that are suffering in silence, when they hear somebody's story, they cling onto the lifeboat and they realize two things. The first thing they realize is they're not alone. And the second thing they realize is that they're just normal. They're just normal human beings, just normal human beings. So, so in summary, education, campaigning, support resources in place, and storytelling. And I think storytelling is probably the most powerful weapon in addressing the stigma of mental ill health in the workplace. Absolutely. And I, I think what you say about education is really important as well in terms of people, managers should be trained in uh, knowing who to yeah. send people to yeah. uh, at the most base level. I think everyone should be aware and empowered uh, to take the next steps if they are feeling yeah. um, in any way mentally unwell uh, and know who to go to as well. Yeah. Um, and on the topic of COVID and mental safety, let's talk about how work-life balance in some ways has been eroded by working from home. Of course, there are many benefits to it, and I'm sure people love, you know, the lions and the lack of commute in some respects. And positively, we've seen that 71% of respondents said they have a good work-life balance, while 29% disagreed. That being said, 44% said they felt their work often pushed them to work later or blurred the boundaries between home and life, home life and work life. Um, and you could ask, are we working from home or living at work in some cases? Um, so, Jeff, I'd be interested to get your perspective on this. How, what should we be doing to ensure our mental well-being is prioritised in these yeah. different ways of working? Yeah, you know, Nina, I think it's about a mindset. It starts off about a mindset. And the mindset is, and the question that I would throw to the audience is where is your well-being in your list of priorities? Now, what do I mean by well-being? If you just put up slide eight, I think we've got a slide which kind of defines well-being. But what do I mean by well-being? I mean your physical health, your emotional health, how you feel, your mental health, which is your cognitive abilities, and have you got a sense of purpose and meaning in your life? That's our well-being. That's our health in a holistic sense. Mm. Now, I would challenge anybody on this call to tell me what is more important in their life than their health, than their well-being. Just tell me what's more important. There can't be anything more important than being healthy. Now, people will say, okay, my children are more important or my partner is more important or my husband. Sorry, if you are not energized, passionate, healthy, you can't be that good father, that good mother, that good partner. You can't be that if you don't, if you're not healthy, if you're not well. Instead, what you come home and the way in which you behave is that you're some irritable git all the time. <laughs> He's got no time for his children or her children or your partner. Mm. or you're just completely in another space because you're thinking about work the whole time. So I would argue that the most valuable thing that we all have in our life, there's nothing more valuable than our health and our well-being. 
Now, if we were to prioritize that, really prioritize it, make it the most important priority in our life, we will then find the time to do some stuff that will help us protect all elements of our well-being. And I'm going to just share a very simple acronym, slide nine, which I use every single day. I will dedicate 60 to 90 minutes every single day to can do. And people say to me, Jeff, where do you get 60 minutes in a day? And you know what I say to them? Is there are 1,440 minutes in a day. 1,440. Don't tell me you haven't got 30, 15, 20 to dedicate to yourself. As we work in this hybrid working where you can slow easily, just get up, put a decent shirt on and start at seven and finish at 10. Well, guess what? You know, the, you know the, air, the air steward in an airplane and they give you the safety briefing and they say to you, you know, if this airplane were to go down and the oxygen mask were to fall and your daughter's sitting next to you, who do you put the oxygen mask on first, Nina? Yourself. Exactly. <laughs> and then you tend to your daughter or your son or really? whoever. Well, where is your oxygen mask? Is it on the next email? Is it on your organization? Is it on your son, your daughter? I mean, put the oxygen mask on ourselves first. And this is my oxygen mask. And I promise you, I dedicate 60 to 90 minutes every single day to ensure that I protect the most valuable thing I have in my life. There's nothing more valuable than my health. And the C stands for connection. And I will dedicate five minutes or 10 minutes every single day to do some connection. Connect with a friend, connect with a meaningfully connect with a member of my family, connect with nature. It's so good for our emotional health connection. The A stands for be active. Now, I don't mean you have to go and run a marathon tomorrow, but go for a walk around the block, you know, go for a walk down to the shops and get some milk, you know, jump on your bicycle and ride to the shops, but just find 30 minutes, 30 minutes every single day to just be active. It's so good for our physical health. The N stands for, I love it, just try and be nice to somebody. Just be nice to somebody every single day. Just be nice. See what that does in terms of a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. The D stands for discover. Be curious. Try and learn something new. Five minutes, 10 minutes. Listen to a podcast when you're going on your walk. But just be curious. Do a wordle. Do a crossword. Do a Sudoku. But the more curious we are, the more we want to learn something new. That's good for our neural pathways, which is good for our mental health. And that's why work is so good for us. You know, going to work, we've been curious, we're learning something new. It's good for us. It can be so good for our mental health. So that's the D in discover. And then finally, the O. And it's my biggest challenge in life. It's my biggest challenge in life. But just try every two hours to take a five-minute observation break. And what do I mean by that? A stroke the cat moment. Stroke the cat moment. Every two hours, take five minutes and just go and stroke the cat. That means do nothing. Do nothing. Go and stand outside and just look at the leaves on a tree or go and listen to some music or practice some mindfulness or some meditation. But every two hours, take that five minute to just observe, to just do nothing. And you know, it's so difficult. I can tell you after five minutes seems a long, long time. <laughs> after two minutes, I want to look at an email or I want to look at, you know, I mean, but just try and do nothing for five minutes. Recovery during the course of a day is so, so important for our physical health.
So that's, we leave, we leave our audience today with that little acronym. But you know what? I can leave you with that acronym. But if your mindset is not one where your health is the most important thing in your life, you will find every excuse in the sun not to do some connection. No, I haven't got time to go for a walk around the block. I've got to do X, Y, and Z. Why? Because X, Y, and Z is more important than your health. Absolutely. And it's so interesting you talk about it as a holistic perspective as well and how mental health feeds into every element of your life. There is no element of your life that isn't empowered yeah. by you feeling mentally healthy and taking time for exercises like this. And it's interesting that you say, even when you're doing that, oh, that observing, you're still thinking, you know, oh, I could be doing an email right now. The, the effort no. and energy we put into yeah. something like emails, something like work, if we put in a, even a tenth of that into ourselves and our mental health, we'd reap many, many rewards, I'm sure. Um, Let's just go back to slide eight. I mean, that's what I love about the, you know, the, the, the fact that Warwick Edinburgh define well-being through this triangle, because they say that if you're not physically well, that will impact how you feel emotionally. If you're not well emotionally, that will impact your ability to think clearly and have good cognitive abilities. And it'll also impact that sense of purpose and meaning. So they're all intertwined. But the base, the fundamental base is being physically healthy which then helps you with your emotional health, your mental health, and that sense of purpose and meaning. Absolutely. And I know we're running low on time at the minute, but if we just, I, I'll, I'll skip straight to the question, uh, Jeff, when it comes to employee well-being, is this something that is of strategic importance to business? Is this a conversation that should be we should be having in the boardroom as much as in the Absolutely. Uh, we should be having it in the boardroom. We should be having this conversation in the boardroom. And let me tell you why. Because the most limiting resource that I see in workplaces today, irrespective of which sector I'm working in or where I am in the world, the most limiting resource I see in workplaces today is the energy of people. People are frazzled. They are frazzled. And you know what? You cannot be energized if you are not healthy. And so I would argue that the most critical enabler of an individual's performance, a team's performance, an organization's performance is the energy of that individual, that team. The more energized you are, the better you will perform. And you cannot perform if you're not healthy. And so if it's such a critical enabler of performance, then it should be a strategic priority at an executive level. Because every other strategic priority will be about enabling the performance of that organization. Why then is the health and the well-being of your people not a strategic priority? I'd like somebody to tell me, why don't they want energetic, happy, passionate individuals working in their workplace? And for it to be a strategic priority, I think there are a couple of things that organizations have to bear in mind. And if you put the final slide up, which is slide 11, I just leave everybody with this very simple framework as to what it would look like if you were to make the health, the well-being of your people a strategic priority. Why? Because it's a performance enabler. And in order to do that, you need to address stigma. You need to look at the ways in which you work in your organization and change some of those. You need to build some measures and put a measure in place around the well-being of your people, not just an engagement survey. You need to shift some of the leadership behaviors in the organization. You need to ensure that individuals as part of their development are being asked to develop their well-being as part of their development, not just their skills, their knowledge, and their behaviors, we should also be encouraging people to, to enhance their overall well-being because they'll be energized and they'll perform better. And then you need to make sure that you have a framework in place where you've defined well-being and you've got resources in place 
where people can draw on some of those resources to enhance their physical, emotional, mental, and make sure that your organization has got a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning beyond growth and profitability. Now, I know we haven't got enough time to go into that in much detail, but you know, if anybody wants to, to, to unpick some of that as to how we would elevate and create the well-being of our people as a strategic priority, I'd happily, happily have that conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, so we've talked a lot about um, the importance of connecting, of communicating, uh, talking. So a final thought for today's session from Bulbshare as well is just the rele relevance of employee communities. So bringing together your workforce into a community, forming deeper working relationships that ultimately result in high performing teams and happier people. Um, you can achieve a forum of support and community that colleagues need in confusing hybrid times um, and ideate on the team, the changes that your team wants to see. Um, over half said that they would be interested in being in a employee community to feel more connected at work as well. So thank you everyone for joining today and a special, special thank you to Jeff for sharing your story and your ideas. It's been very, very inspirational and quite moving at times actually. Um, and it's very important to hear about the how essential mental health is in the workplace and why it's a non-negotiable in modern working world. So thank you again, Jeff, and thank you to the audience as well. Thanks, Nina, bye. and go well. Bye now. You, bye. Thank you so much for listening, but don't stop there. There is so much more coming from us. Remember to follow and subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts on and tell your friends too. And while you're at it, why not check out Bulbshare a little more? You can find us on social media, on bulbshare.com or on email at info at Stay tuned for more podcasts packed full of insights. Thank you.